Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. After covering the stories of Merovic and Guntramboso, a prince and a noble who helped disrupt Chilperic's momentum after Sigebert's death, this week we're talking about Praetex Tartus, Bishop of Rouen. This will be the last of our little mini-series of deep dives, and next week we'll pick back up with our normal narrative. But Praetex Tartus is a crucial inclusion. His treason trial pulls together a lot of the themes and changes we've been exploring, as well as being a highly dramatic affair. Chilperic may have started tempering his violent Merovingian autocracy with some more subtle approaches, but he was still a king. Between his authority and Fredegund's scheming, will they be able to force out one of the bishops of the realm? How will that bishop's fellow clergy react to this naked attack on the authority of the church? All that and more in episode 22, The Trial of Praetextatus. Praetextatus, later Saint Praetextatus, had been elected Bishop of Rouen in 549, when Gregory was only 11 years old. Rouen was a major city and a metropolitan see, meaning Praetextatus was one of the most powerful men in Gaul, and one of its most prominent bishops. By the time Gregory became Bishop of Tours in 573, Praetextatus was already one of the elder statesmen of the Gallic Church. He had played a major role at various synods and councils over the decades, and was generally a respected and revered figure. I want everyone to keep this in mind as we go forward, because it is important to remember this context as it clashes with the rather ugly events of the trial. Now, before we get to the trial itself, let's lay out the events leading up to it so everything is crystal clear. It's 575, and Sigebert has just been killed. Praetextatus is bishop in Rouen, Gregory in Tours. Praetextatus is popular and well-respected, while Gregory is just starting to gain his footing as bishop. Merovic has been tasked by his father Chilperic to move south and secure the Loire. Brunhild is taken from her children and imprisoned in Rouen. Merovic takes his army from the Loire and moves north, but first he spends Easter with Gregory in Tours. What do they talk about? Unknown. But once Merovic reaches Rouen, he forms an alliance with his aunt Brunhild, marrying her and placing himself in opposition to his father. The priest who marries them is none other than Praetextatus, bishop and, also, Merovic's godfather. The series of events around Merovic begin to unfold, with it taking two years for Chilperic to really get a handle on things. In this time, Merovic's rebellion fizzles, and he is captured and eventually commits suicide, though this won't happen until after the trial is finished. Brunhild, meanwhile, escapes to the east and begins establishing herself in the court of Childebert II. Gregory, having harboured both Guntramboso and Merovic, is not in favour with the king and queen, and neither is Praetextatus. 
Both Fredegund and Chilperic want Praetextatus to pay for what he has done. In marrying Merovic and Brunhild, he has caused two years of chaos and violence. Chilperic blames the bishop for turning his son against him. Fredegund is angry that he supported one of her rivals in Chilperic's court and allowed another rival, Brunhild, the space she needed to escape. Praetextatus may be important and popular, but he lies squarely within Chilperic's realm, and he's not going to get out of this one easily. But Chilperic doesn't simply move on the bishop. He is not a stupid man, and he knows that things have changed in the realm. The church is a key ally in maintaining stability and supporting the Merovingian dynasty. If the king simply had Praetextatus arrested and killed, that support would vanish, and he would have made an enemy out of the most powerful institution in Gaul. If he arrested Praetextatus for treason and tried him without the presence of a council of bishops, he would achieve much the same outcome. Chilperic knows that he needs to move with more caution and subtlety than his predecessors ever did. So, he takes a more restrained approach. He suddenly declares that he has heard Praetextatus has been bribing people to oppose his interests, and summons the bishop to answer these accusations. Whilst Praetextatus was with him, Chilperic declares the bishop has property that was given to him by Brunhild, banishes the bishop, confiscates said property, and calls a council to hear Praetextatus's case. Now so far, this is a fairly straightforward plan. Lure Praetextatus out of Rouen so he can't hide anything or claim sanctuary in his own church, then accuse him of conspiring against Chilperic and banish him to reduce the amount of influence he might be able to wield in the interim before the trial. Chilperic couldn't wantonly accuse the Bishop of Treason and remove him, but accusing him of meddling in secular politics and inciting violence was a more reasonable charge. And it just might stick, if he played his cards right. But even this would have been dicey, as it still implied that clergymen could face banishment over any foray into politics. Since many clergy served as middlemen and ambassadors of sorts, such a precedent would have made many very uncomfortable, and Chilperic could expect to face strong resistance. So, he did something novel. He began to build his case. Demonstrating once again that he had a fairly strong understanding of how the church actually functioned, Chilperic opened up the books of some of the recent church councils and honed in on sections about incest. Specifically, he pointed to recently defined prohibitions on incest, including one prohibiting a man and the wife of his dead uncle being together. These had been clearly stated in two recent councils, Tours in 567 and Paris in 573. Unfortunately for Praetextatus, he had likely been at both of these councils. Thus, Chilperic's three-pronged strategy was born. Incest, bribery, and treason. Things were already looking pretty bleak for Praetextatus even before the trial had begun, but he had a few things on his side. He was popular, 
and his reputation had been very solid before this whole situation had begun. He knew activist bishops would react poorly to Chilperic's implication of authority over the supposedly independent church. He also knew that those formally aligned with Sigebert and the Eastern Court would want to take the opportunity to defend their ally and deal Chilperic a defeat. He also knew Chilperic's evidence was relatively solid. After all, Praetix Tartus had facilitated the incest of Mervik and Brunhild, knowing it would cause chaos. But he had needed some form of confession or an admission of guilt to really sway the council. He just needed to hold strong, deny the accusations, and hope that some of his allies would step up to defend him. And so the trial began in 577, with the bishops of the realm meeting at the Church of St. Peter the Apostle in Paris. Chilperic opened with his core arguments. What was in your mind, bishop, when you married my enemy, Merovec, who should have been my son, to his own aunt, his uncle's widow? Surely you knew what the canons of the church had prescribed for such a case. What is more, it is proved that you not only did wrong in this, but that you have conspired with Merovec to bribe certain people to encompass my death. You have encouraged a son to become his father's enemy. You have bribed the common people so that none should keep the faith which he had promised me. And you have sought to betray my kingdom into another's hands. As I said, incest, bribery, treason. Now, at this point, Gregory records a great shout arising from the Franks listening outside, who apparently wanted to storm the church, drag Praetextatus out, and stone him to death there and then. Chilperic forbade this, but the likelihood this was a staged event to show the king's determination to have justice and a fair trial seems high. After this episode, Praetextatus spoke, swearing that what the king had said was untrue. In response, Chilperic called in his witnesses, who presented a series of precious objects, claiming the bishop had given them these things in return for supporting Merovec's rebellion. Fairly damning evidence. In response, however, Praetix Tartus said, quote, What you say is true, in that you have often received gifts from me. But this was not so that the king might be driven from his realm. You gave me fine horses and other gifts. What could I do except make similar presents to you in my turn? With this, Chilperic left the church and withdrew to his lodgings in the city. With Praetextatus denying his accusations and displaying exactly the kind of logic and humility that would appeal to men of the church, his case wasn't looking so hot. The bishops were left discussing the events so far when a Parisian archdeacon by the name of Aetius burst into the room. He immediately embarked upon an impassioned plea, quote, Listen to me, all you priests of the Lord who are assembled here. The moment has come when you will make your names famous and you will shine like bright lights because of the good reputation which you have earned, or else you will abandon all claim to be called God's bishops because you have behaved in a craven fashion and allowed fellow churchmen to be destroyed. After this outburst, 
the assembled bishops stayed quiet. Was it because they were afraid of Chilperic like Gregory suggests? Perhaps, but it might also have been because it wasn't really the place of an archdeacon to insult the council of bishops. Either way, in the silence, Gregory himself rose to speak. Gregory's speech is long, so I won't repeat it in full, but luckily, the beginning is the most incendiary part. Listen carefully to what I have to say to you, saintly men all, God's bishops, and especially those among you who seem to be in the king's confidence. Make sure that the advice which you give him is holy advice and worthy of your rank in the church, for there is a danger that by turning his wrath against one of God's ministers, he may destroy himself in his paroxysm, and so lose both his good name and his kingdom. Gregory then went on to give examples of doomed rulers who crossed men of the church, but the crux of his statement is in this first part. And, as always, Gregory doesn't pull his punches. He heavily implies that some of his fellow bishops in that room are working for the king, and that they're giving him bad advice, and then tops it off with a very thinly veiled threat at the longevity of Chilperic's reign, if you know what I mean. This kind of speech is exactly what Praetex Tartus would have been hoping for, and it is one of the best examples of Gregory at his most radical. For such a diplomatic man, he sure knew how to throw caution to the wind. Now remember, that as Bishop of Tours, Gregory was an important man, but he had only been bishop for about four years at this point, and the beginning of his tenure had been a rough time. His speech to the bishops was only received with more silence, and two of them, named and shamed by Gregory as Bertram and Ragnamod, snuck off to warn Chilperic that Gregory was trying to sway the council against him. Chilperic immediately called Gregory to appear before him, which the young bishop duly did. Probably thinking that he could intimidate this young and inexperienced man, Chilperic got straight to the point, quote, As a bishop, you are supposed to administer justice to all men. You are now behaving most unjustly towards me. It is quite clear to me that you are supporting this man in his criminal actions. You are the living example of the proverb, Corvus oculum corvi non eruit. This last passage means, a crow does not pick out another crow's eye. There isn't a whole lot of subtlety here. Both Chilperic and Gregory knew the young bishop was aligned with Sigebert and Brunhild. Chilperic was rather blatantly telling him to rethink who he wanted as an ally. Gregory responded immediately, My lord king, if any one of our number has attempted to overstep the path of justice, it is for you to correct him. If, on the other hand, it is you who act unjustly, who can correct you? We can say what we think to you. If you wish to do so, you can listen to us. If you refuse to listen, who can condemn you for it, except him who has promised eternal justice? Chilperic, unsurprisingly, did not appreciate this threat against his eternal soul. 
He responded again. All other men treat me fairly. You alone are unjust to me. I know what I will do, so that you may appear in your true colours before your own people, and so that they may all come to realise that you are incapable of administering justice. I will call a meeting of the inhabitants of Tur, and I will say to them, Here is a slogan for you to shout about Gregory. He is an unfair man, and he treats no one justly. And as they shout this, I shall answer, Even I, who am the king, can find no justice at his hands. Why do you lesser folk expect to find it? This is, again, a not-so-subtle threat. This time, Chilperic seems to be referencing the fact that Gregory ascended to the bishopric with the help of Sigebert and Brunhild, and potentially wasn't too popular at this point in his tenure. If Chilperic managed to turn the people of Tour against Gregory, he'd have a much easier time removing him from his position. Gregory, even in his own narrative, was clearly incensed by this, and responded sharply, It is not for you to say whether or not I am unjust. God alone, to whom the secret places of all hearts are open, knows what is in my conscience. You can insult me, and you can persuade my people to shout untrue things about me. What does that matter to me? They will all know that they are shouting these things to please you. It is not I, but you, who will endure the obloquy of what they shout. I am wasting my breath on you. You have the law and canons. You must study them diligently. If you do not carry out what they say, you will soon come to realize that the judgment of God hangs over your head. With this rather heated exchange, both men had made their feelings very clear. Gregory was simply saying to Chilperic, You may be the king, but you are not the law, nor are you justice. The law derives from God, and you had best follow what has been laid out. This is an expression of the legalism deeply rooted in Roman traditions, showing the enduring influence Rome had even a century into Merovingian rule. It is also important to note that Gregory's threats were not idle. He believed, as did many others, that God wouldn't simply wait for your death to then punish you. If you ticked him off, he'd come right on down and punish you on earth first. Gregory wanted Chilperic to be very aware of the potential consequences of his actions. What followed was an awkward exchange where Chilperic tried to get Gregory to accept his hospitality, but Gregory kept refusing unless the king promised to abide by the law. Only once Chilperic swore to do so did Gregory agree to dine with him briefly. This sudden shift in the king's tone may seem strange, but it makes a bit more sense in light of what happened to Gregory later that night. There was a loud knocking at Gregory's door. Messengers from Fredegund had arrived, and they bore an offer from the queen. Two hundred pounds of silver, an exorbitant amount, and in return, Gregory would condemn Praetextatus openly during the trial the next day. They claimed that all the other bishops had agreed, and Gregory was the last holdout. This was probably always the backup plan if Chilperic's naked authority failed to cow Gregory. 
His actions at the trial had cemented him as the leading voice of opposition, and the sum was probably so large because it represented an attempt to make Gregory switch sides more generally. If the man who had spoken so openly against Chilperic suddenly reversed course, it would be a massive boon to Chilperic's reputation. Unfortunately for Fredegund, she didn't really yet understand what kind of a man she was dealing with. Gregory gave the messengers a very clear answer. Quote, If you were to give me a thousand pounds of silver, could I do anything else except what God ordains? I promise you this, and only this. I will agree to what the others decide, provided that it is in full accord with the ordinance of the canons. The next day, some bishops came to him to repeat the queen's request, but he simply answered them the same way. Gregory's courage here must be admired. He had openly taken a stance against incredibly dangerous people, refused their offers, money that his city really could have used, and made himself one of their biggest enemies, all for the sake of his morals. It must be pointed out that Praetix Tartus was his political ally, and it benefited him to support the bishop, but I don't think this explains quite how far Gregory went. I think it's clear he really believed what he said, and he was willing to risk everything for his beliefs. The next day of the trial was more back and forth. Chilperic pointed out that if Praetix Tartus was found guilty of larceny, he had to be removed from his episcopal office. He again offered evidence, this time the bundles of precious goods he had seized from Praetix Tartus, supposedly from Brunhild, that Chilperic said were rightfully his, meaning Praetix Tartus had stolen them from him. Praetix Tartus replied that the goods had indeed been left behind by Brunhild, but that he'd informed Chilperic about the situation and he'd given them back when the king had ordered, also accusing the king of lying as he did. Chilperic then asked why he had removed some of the goods and given them as gifts if they were truly meant to be returned to Chilperic. Praetix Tartus countered that those goods had actually belonged to Merivec, which, as his godfather, gave Praetix Tartus the right to do as he wished with them. This back and forth was going nowhere, so Chilperic again retreated from the chamber. The next day, he returned and renewed his accusations, saying Praetix Tartus had given these gifts in exchange for an oath of fidelity to Merivec. Praetix Tartus answered that, since he was the prince's godfather, it was only right that he offer friendship on his behalf. As the argument continued, Praetix Tartus suddenly rose and threw himself at Chilperic's feet, crying out, quote, Most merciful king, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am an evil murderer, for I wanted to kill you and to place your son on the throne. End quote. Chilperic then got up and knelt at the feet of the bishops in council, saying, quote, Most pious bishops, you hear this guilty man confess his execrable crime. He was then raised to his feet by the weeping bishops, and he ordered Praetix Tartus to leave the church before returning home himself for the night. If you're confused by this sudden twist, don't be alarmed. So is everyone else. 
Praetix Tartus's confession came out of nowhere and was entirely out of character for the calm and proud bishop. Gregory has the inside scoop though, and he informs us that the night before, Chilperic's pet bishops had approached Praetix Tartus on Chilperic's behalf, promising that if he confessed, the king would pardon him. This must have seemed like a solid compromise for the old bishop, whose position was still dicey. Even if he won over the bishops, there was no reason to believe Chilperic wouldn't find something else to accuse him of. Or maybe one of Fredegund's assassins would find him in the night. Wanting for it all to be over, Praetix Tartus had taken the deal on the table. But it was not a good idea to trust Chilperic. Instead of pardoning the bishop, he had him imprisoned and then sent into exile on the Channel Islands. There was a shock when the pronouncement was read out, and those present learned not to trust in Chilperic's mercy ever again. Gregory tried his best to argue against the punishment, which he claimed was against canon law, but it was too late. The trial was over. The trial of Praetextatus reveals not only the changing face of justice and concepts of justice the Merovingians now had to face, but also the tools they had at their disposal to get their way. It shows the extent to which the clergy was coming under the king's thumb, but also that there were still those who were willing to stand up against royal authority and assert that the church was an independent institution. With Praetextatus gone, Gregory was now the main voice of opposition within the kingdom, and his time would soon come. Next week, we're going to catch up with what has been happening in the realm more generally, including the actions of King Guntram and the court of Childebert II. I hope you've enjoyed these deep dives into the stories of opposition to Chilperic. There will be plenty more further down the road. But it's time to get our narrative moving again, and see what else has been happening in the realm. See you then.